Hello, you are listening to the Michigan Mausoleum, your premier source for goth and alternative culture, news, and talk in the Great Lakes area. Now, come inside and join your host, Rokus Doran. Shall we begin? I've been waiting, Master. Welcome again, Darklings, to my lair and to the Michigan Mausoleum Show. In this episode, I am privileged to be joined by Tara Johnson Mettinger, writer and director of My Summer as a Goth. And then later I sit down with Constantine Zenos of the Toronto-based band Adonis Adonis. Well, October has passed all too quickly, I'm afraid, but the dark half of the year is still in full swing. Events and other things are coming up, so let's get to news and events. News and events, here's what's coming up. The improvisational violinist Dixon is coming to Michigan. Dixon's violin, the Human Kindness Tour, will play in Lansing at Urban Beat on November 16th, at the Pontiac Little Art Theater on the 17th, and on November 25th at Aretha's Jazz Cafe and Music Hall in Detroit. On Friday, December 22nd, Club 693 in Toronto will host the Nightmare Before Christmas post-punk dark wave goth party. There will be a $250 cash prize for Best Nightmare Before Christmas or Conjuring 2 costume. If you would like to experience the beauty of classical music by candlelight, the Candlelight Holiday Special, featuring The Nutcracker and more, will perform at the Lansing Central United Methodist Church on December 15th and 23rd. Experience the beauty of the season by music in a room lit only by candles. Tickets at feverup.com. And if you're tired of the holly jolly sweetness of the Christmas season, Krampus will be making two appearances in the Great Lakes area on December 9th. The first is the 11th annual Krampus Ball, which will take place at the Toronto Opera House. The second will be in Lansing, Michigan, with the first annual Old Town Krampusnacht celebration. I recently had the opportunity to speak with the organizer of this event. Let's hear what she had to say. <laughs> and I am with Summer Schreiner, an organizer for the upcoming Old Town Krampusnacht uh, event this December. Uh, hello. Hi. How are you? Thanks for having me. Yeah, thank you for being here. So uh, this is the first time that the Lansing area will have had a Krampus or Krampusnacht event. Uh, is that correct? Yes. Okay. Yeah, we're, we're pretty excited about it. Oh, I, I am too. <laughs> uh, there, there was one in uh, Detroit going for a couple of years, but I don't yeah. think it is now. I'm hoping it will come back, but um, yeah, I don't believe it's happening right now. So how did the idea to get one going in Lansing come about? So my sisters and I have always kind of been obsessed with Krampus. And um, last year we actually went to the uh, Krampus festivals in Austria and it was absolutely. Oh, wow. Amazing. Yeah. The, there's one in Hallstatt that uh, the, all of the local firefighters are um, the Krampuses and their costumes are just incredible. I mean, we're talking, they're made, they're all made of real goat. Um, the, there are years long waiting lists for the masks. They're all hand carved. They're just incredible. And they were putting on this, this wild pyrotechnic show and all sorts of fun stuff. And we just thought, you know, obviously we can't do everything that they are doing, but it would be really fun to bring something like that to our neighborhood. And Old Town is always kind of the redheaded stepchild of Lansing. We always are a little kooky and a little little bit out there. So we thought it would be a perfect way to um, fundraise. Now, I have seen <clears throat> only YouTube videos of that, but I, I know what you're talking about. It, so it's, it's amazing. <laughs> it, it really is just the, the effort 
and uh, the, the the length, the amount of detail that goes into the costumes and the production is uh, looks amazing. Yeah, yeah, they're pretty incredible. Now you said fundraise. What is this fundraising for? Well, this year we'll be fundraising for the Lansing Makers Network. Um, I'm not sure if you guys are familiar or if you have a Makers Network where you are, but it's a wonderful nonprofit that uh, provides all sorts of tools and educational classes, all sorts of wonderful things for its members. Um, and they're, they're a little bit kooky and off like us, so uh, we thought they'd be a per- perfect partner this first year with us. Now, how do you get, go about starting an event like this that's going to kind of take up Old Town? Well, we've been putting on, uh, I sit on the Old Town Commercial Association board, and we've been putting on events down here, you know, um, that I've been a part of for almost 20 years now. So we have a bit of experience putting on events down here, but this one is definitely different than anything we've ever done. Um, So basically, we just tried to kind of gauge if there was some interest, see if we could get enough folks to volunteer and help put it on and um, talk to the city, get everyone insured, you know, sort all of that stuff out and start planning. So when people come to this, what can they expect to see? So the event's going to be December 9th um, in Old Town, which where it will start, you'll be able to see it if you come to Old Town, but if you come to the corner of Turner and Cesar Chavez Avenue in Lansing, the festival will be right there. So it's gonna go from six to nine, um, at six o'clock, we've got games that will be available in the in the park. Um, we've got uh, a um, Krampus ball game happening. We've got uh, brown bags for the kids to color that they'll be able to collect candy from later on. We've got the story of Krampus being told in that park. Uh, we've got a market of misfits. Um, so a whole bunch of fun makers will have a little market down here. We have warming stations, and at 7.30, the actual Krampus run and parade will happen. So they'll just kind of be um, hopping around um, in a little little unorganized kind of parade down here. We've got a couple of fire performers that are going to join them. Um, we have a food truck that is doing Mexican hot chocolate and um, empanadas. We have someone who's doing glue vine down here, one of our bars. So there's just all sorts of silliness happening. And um, yeah, we've got a warming station where the kids can color. And at the very end, Krampus and St. Nicholas meet up and hand out candy to the kids. Well, we've right, also- right. Cause they are, uh, they are buddies. Yes. It's well, like we've- Santa gets the nice list. Krampus gets the naughty list. <laughs> as I understand it. Exactly. And it's really funny because in Austria, they, they very much are a team. Uh, at these events. It's it's really interesting because what I always had in my head was that, you know, Krampus is St. Nicholas's nemesis. And it's like, no, Krampus is St. Nicholas's henchman. <laughs> well, well, right. They're the carrot and the stick. Yeah. But we've, we've got costume contests happening um, that a local artist has been making the awards for us. It's I think it's going to be a lot of fun. We're really looking forward to it. So you're looking for people to come in costume. We would love that. Absolutely. And compete in the costume contest, become a part of the parade. We would absolutely love that. And traditionally part of the parade, you have Krampus, you have uh, St. Nicholas, and you also have the the Winter Witch. Yes. So this is just sort of, um, we've been inviting folks to dress like winter witches, um, dress like the cat, uh, dress like Krampus. We're just throwing in all of the winter monsters for fun. <laughs> so we're asking folks to dress up however they like um, and join us. And you have a storyteller who's going to be there. We do. A storyteller will be in our park that's right there on the corner to tell the story of Krampus um, to kids and whoever wants to listen. So. Okay. Is there anything you would like uh, you anything else you would like the public to know? You know. Um, Everything about the event is on Facebook. Uh, if you just look up Old Town Krampus Knocked and Krampus Knocked is K-R-A or yeah, K-R-A-M-P-U-S-N-A-C-H-T. All the information is there, but we're still looking for volunteers. We're looking for folks still to dress up and just join us. But we hope folks come out for it. I think it's going to be a really good time. Well, my family and I definitely will be. I'm so happy to hear that. And kids are absolutely welcome. And we're, we would love for kids to dress up too. They're, they're welcome in the costume contest and every part of this. So 
well, Krampus needs something to fill his basket with. So it's definitely true. bring the kids. Yeah. <laughs> very true. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you very much for taking the time to talk to me about it. Well, thanks so much. We really appreciate your interest, and I really look forward to meeting you all. Um, please join us, and if we can do anything for you or you'd like to uh, join us as a volunteer, all that information is on our Facebook page. So hope to see you all there. Looking ahead to next year, Wicked, the musical, is coming to the Detroit Opera House. It will start on January 24th and run through February 18th. If you are aware of any news or events coming up that you think should be shared on the podcast, please message the show or go on the Michigan Mausoleum Facebook page and let us know. But for now... That is all you know and all you need to know. And welcome with me is my special guest for this episode, Tara Johnson-Mettinger. Tara is a film director, producer, and educator. Tara, welcome. Thank you. So good to be here. Now, uh, you you are based in Portland, Oregon. I am. And uh, you are the director of My Summer as a Goth. I am, yes. I am. (laughs) But uh, you've done other things as well. Uh, you are, uh, I believe you are the founder of your own production company? I am, yes. Um, gosh, I've been in the film and television industry for the past 30 years and I have had you know, variety of different positions working for people. But in the last 20 years, I founded my own production company and have done a lot of client-based work worked on several feature films, including my own, and uh, documentary work as well. What got you into wanting to work with TV and film as a media to begin with? You know, I just was talking to someone about this last night, and uh, it really came back to high school, and I was a theater kid, but I really liked doing all the technical stuff in theater. So I love doing stage management and running the light boards. Uh, And when I was uh, preparing for college, I went to the University of Oregon. I was looking at their majors and I always was very curious about the film industry. And so I checked the box of telecommunications and film and I got my degree at U of O. I also got an art minor where I learned a lot about the aesthetics of photography and animation. And that really just kind of carried me into the industry. I started working pretty young. Um, I even in college, I got a part-time job at a local TV station And after I graduate, that translated into a full-time job and sort of started building my career pretty young, um, which is unusual, but I just had some opportunities that presented themselves and I went for it. Now, you were working in television, I believe, when, and then you left that to go back to Portland, Oregon and start your own company, which is called Little Miss Anomaly. Is that right? Yes. Yeah. Okay. What, what made you want to leave TV uh, to do that? So I was, I was in Eugene for a long time after I graduated college, and then uh, I jumped and moved to Los Angeles, and I worked for the Fox Broadcasting Company, the network side, not the news side of right. Fox. I, I like to clarify. There, that's, an important, that's an important distinction. Yeah. <laughs> yes, it is. And um, it was the you know, mid to late 90s. It was a very different time in terms of television. And especially for Fox, you know, cable was around, but the internet was still relatively new. So it was just a very different animal broadcast television. And I worked at the network for about six years. And I had the opportunity to travel the United States. I represented stations all over the US. I worked in marketing and promotion. So I was in a department that worked with TV stations directly on uh, promoting our Fox shows. So after production, et cetera, was completed. And 
I had a blast. I learned so much about the industry, just being so immersed in it on the television side, but I was always really curious about the film side. And I did some, I would say like moonlighting with friends uh, that were very curious about independent filmmaking as well. And I had uh, several friends that were actors or that were interested in being a DP, but, or, or had a script and, a few people came to me saying, hey, I want to do this, but I don't know how. And that's when I realized that I had a knack for producing. Like I just knew how to organize everyone, bring everyone together, uplift an independent, short independent film off the ground. And I quite enjoyed that part. And I knew that my career kind of had a, a new life beyond television that I wanted to take it. And when my now husband and I decided to move back to Oregon, it was that it was a really good moment within my career to say, okay, I'm done with that chapter of working in network television. Now, what can I do? And I also was presented with, you know, the birth of my first child and, and a huge transition. And uh, at that time, a good friend of mine and I ended up founding what was called Sour Apple Productions back then. And ultimately it became Little Miss Anomaly. But we, um, yeah, we just went for it and uh, kind of transitioned along with being new time parents and finding a different way of working outside of like the kind of corporate structure that I was in, in LA, but also taking all of that knowledge and putting it into our own company. So the maybe wanting was it wanting to get away from that corporate structure that made you decide to just go straight into starting your own company rather than working for an established film production company? Yeah, I I definitely had um, a moment sort of a little later in my journey working in network television where I just didn't feel passionate about it anymore. I also it was sort of the the big moment of reality television. And I, I just really, I, I felt very disenchanted, honestly. And I didn't feel like my value systems aligned with what I was doing for work. And, and I, it, that was compounded with my, my husband and I had made a decision to move back to Portland. But uh, as we were doing that 9-11, happened. And okay, I, yeah. I was like, and I think that, you know, many people that live through that, especially as young adults, it was, it was a big moment uh, for our country, for people personally. And I had a, a real time to reflect and say, I don't want to be in this big city anymore where I don't have family. Um, I don't want to raise my children in this, in this city, but uh, I knew that Portland felt really right. And I wasn't quite sure what that meant career wise, but I knew that it was time to leave. And so, uh, you know, I felt really confident taking all of that knowledge from my experience at Fox and knew that I had something in the future. Uh, it was, you know, un I was unsure at that moment, but I, it really, it gave me a moment to take a pause too, and to just take a break from all of it for like a year and a half. And then uh, when I met Stephanie, my business partner back then, uh, it really felt right to move forward uh, with our own company and, and kind of forge forward on our own. Uh, you have been you, uh, an advocate for gender equality in film production also. You're... Yes. Uh, you've served on the uh, board of directors for your local chapter of uh, uh, women in film. Mm -hmm. And you are also an organizer for the Portland, Oregon women's film festival. Yes. So what are the challenges specifically for those of us who really don't have a background in anything, but uh, you know, film appreciation, I'm a, I'm an avid film fan, but I, I know next to nothing about what goes on you know, behind the scenes, sure. what are the, what are the challenges specifically for women in film production? Well, I mean, I, I would say that many people feel like it's getting better and 
to a degree, I would say, sure, yeah, we're we're getting there, but uh, but we're still having this conversation, <laughs> so uh, we're not quite there in terms of gender parity. Um, you know, representation within uh, the corporate structure of the Hollywood industry has predominantly been highly wealthy, highly highly male dominated, and highly white, and and those are things that especially as a new parent, um, I was faced with uh, talking with a lot of other women kind of in the same part of their career path who were hiding the fact that they were parents because they would be passed over for a job. And I just, for me, that just sounded ridiculous, right? Because here we are highly capable people of doing a job, but because of you know, choosing to be a parent, you're being passed over. And then it just, it really started to open my eyes more about uh, the lack of representation within the industry as a whole. Uh, The fact that, you know, there was not as many women given the opportunity to sit into the director's chair being fully funded and um, able to direct a feature film or a short film for that matter. And so I started having rather rather lengthy discussions with a lot of, you know, colleagues and friends here within Portland and found that there was a need within our community for that representation. So women in film had chapters all over the United States, but there still wasn't one in Portland. So another friend and I got together along with other people and founded the chapter here. I think it was in 2009. Uh, The year prior, I had taken over the Portland, Oregon Women's Film Festival, which had originally had kind of a a one or two year run, uh, kind of a smaller capacity. And I just really took it with some other people and we really made it into what it has been today. It's currently... I would say it's in its 15th year cycle due to COVID. It, you know, has taken a little, a lot of live event production, as you may know, it's challenging uh, because people have, seek their media in different ways. And so we're taking a pause on the festival component to, to decide what is the best fit for our organization to serve our, uh, the people. So uh, be mainly women directors, non-binary directors, and uh, to make sure that we are continuing to uplift their work, uh, have these conversations about gender equity and opportunity within corporate business structures, because it's still a challenge. And, you know, many women get passed over um, or underpaid, and it's it's a grueling process uh, to be within the film industry as it is. But if you are not seeing people creating media that look like you, whether uh, you know I, you identify as queer or BIPOC or as a woman, uh, it's a real challenge, right? To have that not only representation on screen, but also behind the scenes. So it people in key positions on film sets uh, participating that have different viewpoints than the traditional kind of like white male gaze. Where would you say the best avenues for um, uh, for opportunities for women and non-binary filmmakers are right now? Would you say they're better in independent film in general? I definitely feel like independent film is where it's at. However, independent film is challenging in terms of budget, right? And, uh, you know, most folks are underpaid, uh, they're non-union work. And so people are working for, you know, maybe the equivalent of uh, minimum wage or, you know, a smaller amount because it's a non-union situation. Not to say that people don't participate in that, including myself, because there is there is a heart to independent film that sometimes is lacking in something that is controlled by a studio. And so 
people do work within that realm, I think it's a great place for folks to get a good start and have opportunity uh, within a smaller set to to be in a higher role than maybe a production assistant, which is traditionally kind of the entry level on a set. But if someone can step in on the camera team and learn how to run the slate or how to manage carrying the camera around and assisting the DP, like those are super valuable um, skills that they can bring forward. But it's really important for producers what regardless of being on an independent set or uh, on a set that's, you know, a commercial that's super well-funded uh, or a feature film or a network TV show to really have an equitable eye when they're in their hiring process. And that means not just filling positions, entry-level positions with folks that identify queer, BIPOC women uh, to fulfill your quote-unquote quota, but intentionally you know, providing training and being able to help people level up. And so it is important for me as a producer on all of my sets, I intentionally cast a wider net and uh, make sure that we're including the opportunity for someone that is not traditionally hired or is marginalized that they have the opportunity to interview for a position. I frequently have discussions with producers who say, well, we just can't find anybody that identifies as BIPOC to be on our crew. And I said, well, then you're not doing your job and you're not casting a wider net. You're not exercising the network that you should have as a producer to make this happen. It is possible. Sometimes it takes a little bit longer to make sure that you are finding the right people for your crew, um, but it is possible. Now, um, <clears throat> getting to my summer as a goth, that was yeah. your that was your uh, directorial debut, correct? Yes. Yes. Okay. Now, uh, <clears throat> we prior to COVID, uh, the um, Mid Michigan World Goth Day, it was, it was a different event. We had a cemetery picnic, and. Um, uh, a, um, a club event but after covid you know restarting it we started it as a film festival and my summer as a goth was the first film we shown so thank you i appreciate you're, that <laughs> you're you're like the 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 the, the start off to that um <laughs> what made you choose goth as a subject matter for your first film so um the journey of getting this film out to audience was a very long one. And my best friend from high school presented me with the first version of the script. He's a screenwriter, Brandon Roberts. And he uh, said, you know, he knew that I was really looking for uh, a film to ultimately to just produce. I hadn't been considering directing at that point, but uh, he presented me with this script and I was like, okay, this is it. A lot of, we worked this script together over the years. There was, you know, we had maybe we were considering some other directors at one point, but it was really hard to fit another person within our uh, companionship as best friends from high schools, knowing this script super intimately and knowing exactly what we wanted from it. Uh, so ultimately I took on that director chair to see it through. However, when we were like kind of massaging story and talking about, uh, you know, Joey's journey, there was a lot of things that from our high school experience that we put into this project. So Brandon and I definitely ran with the, um, you know, the weirdos, the freaks, the theater people, the wearers of black, the goths. Um, so we, there's a line in the film that Antonio says, he's like, ah, oh, us freaks got to stick together. It's like, we all found each other, right? It was the late eighties. We were all hanging out downtown Salem and coffee shops. And it just was a very meaningful opportunity for us to tell that story of 
you know, folks that identify differently, right? In terms of like a typical uh, coming of age story, uh, we both were highly influenced by the John Hughes era of coming of age stories, but we wanted to, to update that for today's audience and make sure that we were being mindful of, you know, some representation. We also were very conscious of, we didn't want to make fun of the goth community at all. I mean, there's some, you know, there's some playfulness in there, but uh, we brought in a lot of advisors behind the scenes before we even started filming to just kind of give us a stamp of approval, I guess I would say. Jillian Venters being one of the biggest. Uh, she has a blog a website called Gothic Charm School. And so she was highly involved in terms of just helping us with some story and wardrobe and uh, also has a cameo. And yeah, I, I was going to say she she has a, has a line in the film. Yes, baby bats can never hold their liquor. Hold their liquor. Yeah, that's... <laughs> yes. Uh, so it was very sweet. It was really lovely to have her on set that day. It was quick because she she lives in Seattle and she was down for the day and we had to get her on a plane uh, right after basically right after she delivered that line. We were getting her to the airport. So. Uh, She's always been incredibly supportive of this project and, you know, has just is such a dear and I appreciate her so much uh, within this. Now, you mentioned uh, one difficulty, particularly of independent film is funding and setbacks doing uh, uh, due to funding. Yeah. Uh, how long did I, I know your I know uh, my summers of goth had some trouble that way. How long did it take you from beginning to release to actually get this film done? So we uh, again, I got the first version of the script in 2009. We did a Kickstarter campaign in 2011 to raise like um, <clears throat> preliminary funding to help us go to Los Angeles and talk with potential bigger funders, uh, think about casting. And uh, so we raised, I think it was like 24,000 almost um, from that. And then it just like opened up like, okay, how much are we really going to need? Again, we are still trying to figure out who's going to be directing. Uh, We were able to get the initial funding together in 2016. So in 2015, we did a a casting session with a local uh, kids acting uh, uh, organization here, and we discovered Natalie. And Natalie ultimately was cast as Joey. So once we had our Joey, we knew we were underway. And uh, we also cast a couple of other folks during that time. And we just made it a goal to start filming in the summer of 2016. We got our team together. We had enough money to kind of like, ho- like hopefully get us through production. We knew we needed more. So we ran a- another campaign and uh, we filmed one week of production in 2016 and realized that we were going to run out of money. We were going to exhaust everybody and we just had to pause it. And it was the most heartbreaking thing I have ever done in my life. And it was so hard and so sad because, you know, all these young people involved in the film, I was, I felt terrible. So I spent the next year raising more money from independent donors and from my own pocketbook to get this film completed. And then in 2017, we were able to lift the production back up and we shot two and a half more weeks and got the film in the can. And so remarkably, I don't know if you can tell, but every there is like two years worth of production that are interweaved in the entire film. And so even within certain scenes, it would be one camera direction is year 2016, you turn around, 2017 exactly you know it's back and forth so uh it was a lot of continuity to handle uh the younger actors thankfully all came back 
because the majority of them were wearing a lot of makeup, we could kind of disguise some of their growth. <laughs> and uh, it was it was challenging. But once we got to that point, we really knew we had something special. And most of the team was able to come back. Some folks had to step out due to, you know, life. And, and uh, we got it all into Cannes in 2017 and then had our first festival debut about a year later. Post-production takes quite a while. And all along the way, I was as like asking for deals and getting people to give us a little bit of money or a discount. And so many people in Portland specifically stepped forward to really help complete this film. And then it hit the festival circuit in 2019. And then we received a distribution deal at the very end of that year. I signed on Valentine's Day of 2020. And then two weeks later, the world shut down. <laughs> so, it's been quite a journey. Yeah, that, that <laughs> hit everybody. That hit us too. That was kind of the end of our uh, of our uh, event as we knew it. Exactly. Yeah. Everything had to be reimagined after that point. I mean, it feels like this kind of weird fever dream in a way. Um, but you know, we, we were supposed to go theatrically across the United States and we had to refigure that and um, ultimately made the decision to go, dig, you know, digitally um, across. And it's actually across the world now that, you know, it's all available in the United States and Canada, but it's also in Russia and Europe and Malaysia and all these different countries. I get emails all the time from folks saying, Hey, I just saw your movie and you know, whatever country. And some of it's been translated too, which is really fascinating. Now, are there, is there any chance that uh, we might see these characters again in a future film or some other way? Gosh, I hope so. I, over the pandemic, I wrote a new feature film. Uh, it's very different. Uh, it's called Us Minus You Equals Me. And it's an idea that I've had for many years that's been kind of floating in my brain and finally had the opportunity to go on a writing retreat and just see what could happen. And through that writing retreat, I outlined the entire story and got you know, half of it written uh, during that time. And it was really exciting to, to start living in a new world uh, because my life had been so focused the past 10 years on goth and that particular story uh, that it was really refreshing to just kind of like, in a way, let goth go and like, have it let it have its own journey so i could creatively move on and uh so this new story is based on my time living in los angeles in the late 90s and i would say it's it's a coming of age story but at a one that focuses on kind of that late 20s era of one's life versus like a teenage journey that joey had in my summers of goth and so, uh, but Natalie is, uh, she and I uh, creatively have connected in many ways. And I mean, she's a young adult. She lives in New York. She's living her best young adult life. And, uh, but I want her involved somehow in this project. And she's read the script and she loves it. And uh, I also have a lot of other creative collaborators from my summers of goth that are involved in this new project, in particular, Jana Cushman, who is my composer. Uh, they did all of the score in my summers of goth. They also acted as the music supervisor and helped us uh, negotiate with the artists, the dark wave and goth and local musicians that were featured in my summer as a goth. So they will be participating uh, in that capacity as well on this new film. So we've already like 
they've already wrote some score for me. And I mean, I haven't filmed anything yet. And we're already like talking about post-production elements for the film, but I'm very confident that that will happen. Um, you know, it all comes down to funding and time. And I have this goal of maybe I could film it next summer. Like you, I'm a teacher, so I have, you know, the summers off. So it's kind of a nice opportunity to, um, to be, to do something within that time frame creatively. Now, having been a theater kid your, yourself, uh, did you <clears throat> did you ever do any acting? And might you do some cameos in some of your own films? Uh, briefly, I did. Uh, I was in Arsenic and Old Lace. I played one of the old ladies on my senior year. I did very limited on you know on stage acting. It was never my favorite. Again, I loved the background. I do have a cameo in My Summer as a Goth. I play one of the nuns that walks by the kids as they're coming out of the vintage store. And oh, okay. <laughs> so I'm, I am the nun. Look more carefully next time. I yeah. Hear. I am the nun that says, what the hell? <laughs> so um, that was fun. It was intentional. Uh, there's a lot of our crew actually featured throughout the film. Brandon has a, you know, a brief cameo too. And the, uh, the like uh, Oaks park, which is the, um, what is it called? The, like the amusement park scene. So uh, yeah, a lot of my kids are in the film. A lot of their friends are in the film. It's a really interesting time capsule. When I watch, I just watched it recently. It played here in Portland for an audience and uh, watching it with an audience was really lovely. Cause I hadn't, had that experience since we were on the festival circuit and and just seeing all these people that have been part of my life um helping make this film come alive it was it was really lovely is there a possibility of a director's cut edition or would you say that what you released is you know is the film that you wanted to make potentially i mean there's definitely things that scenes that were dropped and, you know, some story beats that just weren't really working once we got to the edit. And whenever I talk about how you make a film, it's like, there's all these elements that go into it. Like you write your script and it's sort of in your brain one way. And then you go through the casting process and these people that you bring into that sort of bring to life, these characters and the film changes a little bit and then you shoot it. And then because independent film is what it is, there's tons of compromises that you hit. You may have to change a location or, you know, something doesn't feel quite right in an actor's mouth. So you switch up a dialogue piece, you know, the story is still there. Um, and then you get to the edit and the thing is way longer than you expected it. And then you really think about, what's essential to the story, what's driving the story forward, and really what can be left out that's not necessary. And there were there were some moments that just didn't feel right anymore. Uh, we were also editing right when Me Too was coming out and it was there was just a lot of talk about, you know, just treatment of women and and there were some things that were in the original script that just didn't feel right to me anymore. So I switched it up and, and I think it worked to the benefit of the story and ultimately what is on screen. I think that there's chance for, you know, like some bloopers or, you know, drop scenes, that kind of stuff. I actually just had the experience yesterday sitting uh, with a director and another producer that I worked on uh, a film called My uh, Mother of Color. And we just sat and did the DVD commentary and it was so much fun. And I thought, gosh, that would be really cool to uh, get some of the young actors back here with me and uh, sit with them and watch our movie and record our thoughts. So those are things I think that could happen. Um, I know people have asked for a Blu-ray or a DVD. It's just the expense, right? And But if I can figure out 
an inexpensive way to pre-sell them and get them out to folks if they will be interested in purchasing, I would add some extra goodies in there uh, to feature on something like that. Do you have anything, uh, any projects you're working on right now that will be coming up next you'd like to you know, let people know about? Would it be that uh, film that you said you're, you're uh, beginning to write? Definitely. So I have a few projects that uh, as a producer, uh, I am on Mother of Colors, a feature film by a Portland director, Don Jones Redstone. Uh, we shot it a few years ago and she is on the verge of releasing that through Indie Rights and it will be on digital platforms here pretty soon. Uh, very excited and honored to be involved in that film as a producer and uh, I'm also involved in a digital series here locally called This Is Fine. And we are almost done shooting the pilot, uh, which I directed. And I'm also an executive producer on that project. Our goal with that is to, to you know, through this pilot that went incredibly well, looks so beautiful, to get the funding to finish up the first season that's six full episodes and uh, I will hopefully be directing the second episode and then we'll bring on some other directors to complete the series that's been a lot of fun uh, again working on the indie level and working with some highly creative folks that are making some magic on screen uh, which is very exciting uh, so those are two things that I am currently working on. I also have a documentary that I'm directing on former Governor Barbara Roberts, who was the first woman governor of the state of Oregon. So been working with her for the last couple of years and telling her story. And then, of course, my feature, my new feature film is definitely on the horizon. And I hope that it's something that I can get off the ground here within the next year or so. Now, if people want to stay up to date on what's coming from you and your work, uh, where can they find you online? So I uh, have a website, littlemissanomaly.com, and you can learn more about my journey to where I am today. Uh, also, you can connect to all the other work that I've worked on over the years. Uh, I always post there if there's new projects coming up. And I'm also on Instagram as uh, my handle is Little Miss Anomaly. And I post there frequently, uh, sometimes post on my summer as a goth, still trying to figure out how do you continue to promote a, a film that's been out there for a while. I feel like it's it's getting a little bit of a cult following people watch it multiple times and reach out and that's exciting. And so I don't want to just stop um, posting on there, but I'm just trying to figure out kind of like, what is the, what is, how do we do this with, um, with the film now that it's out there and released. Uh, but Instagram is really where I'm at. I, I'm a lurker on TikTok, but I don't participate. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, well, uh, Tara Johnson Mettinger, uh, thank you very much for taking the time to talk to me. Thank you. I and coming up next, I chat with Constantine Zenos of the Toronto based industrial EBM band Adonis Adonis. So. Welcome, Darklings, to my conversation with Constantine Zenos of the, the uh, Toronto-based band Adonis Adonis. Um, welcome. Hey, how's it going? Hey, did I say Adonis Adonis correct? Yeah, correctly? yeah. Adonis Adonis. Okay. Yeah. Adonis Adonis. Okay. Yeah. It was spelled differently, so I wasn't certain. <laughs> okay. So, Adonis Adonis, you are uh, a... Uh, your sound is generally categorized as post-punk EBM industrial, but uh, you have you have uh, you now have five albums, yep. uh, starting with Holland Days in 2011, and you have just come out with uh, Icon. Is that correct? Was that this year? Yeah, that just dropped. Yeah, in July. Okay, that's not available on at least on Apple 
iTunes. Is it uh, available anywhere else for streaming, or can you only oh, get it? It's on Apple. Oh, I couldn't find it. Oh, that's strange. I'll, okay. I'll uh, have to look into that. But no, it's definitely on there. Like we get our yeah Apple report or whatever. <laughs> yeah, it's on there. Okay. Some some listeners may have a hard time finding it, but I I will look again. But I could only find it up to Spectrums. Okay, I'll I'll double check. Like uh, I'll I'll take a look into that. But yeah, as far as I know, it's there. Okay. Well, now <clears throat> your music for me is a fairly new find. I don't know if that's because. I'm American or not, but uh, I, I'm on this side of the border. But I was put on to onto you by a uh, friend in Vancouver named uh, Teresa. I if you could, uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I was to say it'll be give Teresa a thrill to hear you say hi. Uh, can you give me some background on your band? You know, like from its inception. You know, how did it get started and how did it develop? Uh, yeah, it started. I think around like 2008 or 2009, I started doing some demos after I had just left another band called 10 Kens. Um, and uh, I just started working on like a bedroom project. And then um, I, I showed it to my friend, uh, Chris, who's ended up being in Met. And um, he actually like helped me put the band together. He like, uh, yeah, we just like sat there and auditioned people. It actually took like probably a year to put a live band together. And I had uh, shopped the album around and we got picked up by Fat Cat pretty quickly. Um, he used to do Animal Collective and all that back then. Um, so then, uh, yeah, after the after that, we put the band together with Chris. And then, I mean, Mets kind of blew up shortly after. So we kind of, he didn't end up being in the band. But um, yeah, he helped me put the first iteration of the group together. And, and Denim, um, who's the main collaborator, uh, was part of that. So um yeah, and then from there we just started, yeah, playing out. Like the first two records, I, to be honest, were done basically, like in the bag. So it's like after that point, it's like starts becoming more of like a band project. But the first two I I did like in my bedroom, like, uh, I, and then um, the second record uh, I went to BC and I worked with my friend Colin Stewart, um, who we'd done the Ten Kens album with. We've actually done uh, other records together too, but um, yeah, then we recorded the um, po- post plug together as well. And um, I don't even remember it, what year, twenty fifteen or sixteen. Um, uh, I think it came out twenty sixteen. Yeah, but you said like so, Holland Days. You basically did as a solo project in your bedroom. Yeah, that one's like a hundred percent, just like you know, in the bedroom. <laughs> okay, so. Um... Even before that, like, what were your personal influences? What kind of music did you grow up on? What What was your music back in the day in high school? Or oh, I just I, I was always into like um, like in, like industrial music. I grew like I had two older sisters, so they were like into goth and industrial and new wave. So I kind of like the reason. One of the uh, things that influenced. Um, I mean, I still kind of use this to this day, but. Um, I had found like a mixtape that they'd give me like an old cassette and I, I re-listened to it. I'm like, wouldn't it be cool if like I did a record that was kind of based on this and it had like a lot of variety on it. Cause I had new wave. I had some industrial tracks, had some like, you know, like goth songs, like, you know, a, a, like a, a good variation, some like punk post-punk, uh, you know, stuff like dead Kennedys or the cramps were still like mixed in there. And I also like grew up with a lot of surf music because my dad used to be in a surf band, so I kind of had a little bit of that. Your dad was in a band, like, like so early on, yeah. When he was like, uh, like nothing that anybody would know here, but he, he, we're from a small island like in the Mediterranean called Cyprus, and he had a surf band there. So like one of the first things he showed me how to do is play like you know like Pipeline and stuff like that. So I I had like that early influences of surf. So I kind of wanted to incorporate. A little bit of that on like the first record um so, so there's a little bit of surfer bird in you there yeah there's totally that I, I used to collect like tons of surf guitars and stuff um yeah so i was I, I really just wanted to like see like if i could just put them all together like in a blender and see what kind of came out so i wasn't afraid to like mix like industrial with a surf guitar or you know throw some like new wave hooks on on that uh industrial beats or you know what i mean so yeah. i was kind of trying to i was trying to just see what came out if i just kept on blending the genres together and that basically produced holland days 
Yeah, Hollandaise and uh, Hard Boiled, the, the second record. So then, uh, um, from Hollandaise to Icon, what would you say, aside from just moving out of your bedroom, what has changed most musically over that time? Oh man, so much. I don't know. It's like a lot of, so it's been so many years. Like, um, I mean, even the process on each record was so different. Like by the time we got to like, uh, the no pop record, like that one, it was like, we were definitely going for more of like, um, I don't know. I don't know if it was deliberate, but like, even like a Pink Floyd thing where we just kind of, a friend of ours that owned the studio gave us like a bunch of really nice like vintage synths and we would we we actually only spent like i think about three months like writing that record and um it's all like live off the floor like all like jamming based for the most part and then trying to capture that like in the studio so it was like a very different process than being like in a bedroom and then from there it's just kind of a each record we kind of try to take a different approach like um, I'd say with um, Spectrums, we kind of I went a little bit because that was during the pandemic. Um, and me and Denim at the time, we like lived in the same building. So we were actually able to get together all the time and work on that record. But we had to kind of do it more bedroom style again. So that was kind of got to me going back to like square one, like those early records. Um, so that was kind of interesting. But with Icon, it was like, yeah, we we started with uh, mostly me and Denim jamming um and then whatever songs we felt kind of like worked with a different artist we sent those tracks out to the artists and we're like hey can you throw something on this and uh so it was, it was and then we'd kind of go back and forth so that was also another different process but i think it's good to like always kind of change it up because otherwise you kind of get stale right now you've said i uh icon is like your calling card album what does that mean uh, well, because we wanted to kind of uh, display like um, that we can do a, a, a lot of different styles and also as far as production, because we've been moving into like uh, we, we're, we're producing a lot more records lately, like for other people and uh, mastering. So it's kind of like we kind of want to do that as like an example, like that we can branch out and do other things. So like show our versatility, like even more. And uh, I, re- I was reading on your uh, website that Icon has a lot of influences from bands that you've worked with, uh, either like in the studio or on stage. Uh, who are some of these other artists and uh, like what what aspects of them did you pull into your music for this album? Sorry, can you can you say that again? Like, Oh, sure. Did I not come through? No, I just I just trying to like piece together uh, the answer to that oh okay yeah well on your website maybe i mis uh misread it but you 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 um said that icon was you know uh, had a lot of had influences from other bands that you either like or have worked with well yeah that was kind of what i was like getting to earlier like okay um because like basically like we were just kind of working on stuff and then when we we're like, oh, this kind of reminds me of like, oh man, you know who uh, would sound good on this? Like actors or um, right. doing like something that was a little like weirder where like, oh, it'd be cool if Tobacco would want to throw something on this. You know what I mean? So that was kind of, and these are all bands we've like played with or toured with and, you know, we're influenced by as well. Like, so we're just like, oh, okay, well, let's just see if they'll, they'll uh, add something to the tracks. And we kind of had them in mind when we were pitching them, you know? Yeah, I'm I'm a big actors fan. Nice. Uh, nice. Have, have, did you tour with them or? We haven't toured with them, but we've played a bunch. And um, Jason's been like, uh, like really supportive, and he's been a fan of ours. Like I guess earlier on, like uh, he's been around the block, so he's he's heard of our band from a while ago. Um, but I I don't know. He's been one of the, like the biggest like uh, supporters of us, and like I, I can't be thankful enough because, you know, you know he he's had success later on in life and. Um, it's just super inspiring you know like he's just and he's just paying it forward like he hasn't um you know a lot of bands that get popular like they suddenly they don't talk to you anymore you know but they're 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 always like you know pumping our stuff on instagram or twitter you know nice yeah it's just been super 
super super nice to us like we we chat every once in a while like i bought some gear off of them <laughs> like yeah oh that's very cool yeah we I, I sent them some material that we've been working on and you know get his advice like yeah we're just like he's just been really really um nice and helpful to us like uh don't have anything bad to say about him so you are very soon you're about to leave for a european tour yeah okay so uh where uh what countries are you going to be hitting uh we start in czech and then we go to like i have to look at the schedule i i kind of try to not to look at it because I'll get a panic attack probably, but <laughs> <laughs> it's like we go, I know we go through Austria and like Paris, Germany, uh, where else like Bratislava, I think it's, I know we're doing like, uh, I think Poland as well, like a lot of um, Eastern European countries, which we haven't actually done before. So I'm really excited. We want to like, kind of like do a kind of crazier tour. Like let's, let's try some places we haven't gone. Like we've done so eat so many times, and we've done Europe a bunch of times, but we mostly stayed to Western Europe, so this is a little bit different for us. Okay. So you'll be gone for a few weeks, and then you'll be coming back. Do you, uh, What's on the horizon uh, once you come back? Or do you have any well, – I know you've toured the U.S. before, but are you planning on doing that again or Canada or elsewhere? Yeah, we, um, uh, we don't have anything 100% locked in yet, but, like um, – we just like got a new agent, so I'm really stoked about that because it's um, their roster has like you know Killing Joke and a bunch of uh, oh wow yeah like Clan of Zymox and it's a really good fit for us. So I'm I'm really stoked about that. I don't know. If, I don't think we've actually even announced it yet, but this is just something like that just recently happened. So we're gonna talk with them and then rethink a, our our strategy for the U.S. for next year. Um. And then hopefully, like, as, as long as this European tour goes well, like, I'd like to go back and um, for next year. So uh, you you heard it here first, folks. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, we're still um, we're still in the works and like we've been working on we always work on new materials. So we have a bunch of stuff that is kind of in. I wouldn't say done, but, you know, we have a lot of like demos that are coming together, so. I'm hoping to, you know, back these tours up with like some sort of release for next year as well. Do you have uh, like an album name in mind or something you can tell us? Uh, nothing concrete. I the temp title is over the top, <laughs> but that yeah. might not stick. And you know, it's just like one of those things <laughs> you just throw on it. I don't know. Okay. Do, do you have? Is there anything else you'd like to say before we wrap up? Uh, yeah just check our stuff out. <laughs> any so well, i will i will i will continue to look for icon on apple or, or maybe i can find it on spotify but yeah i mean I'll, I'll i'll definitely like try to get that if it's not on there i'll i'll let her like team know to, to to get it up there but i i know for sure like it is definitely circulating on there because like i said we get the apple like weekly reports and it's like people are spinning it so okay Okay, well, Constantine Senos, uh, thank you very much, and uh, I I look forward to seeing what comes next for you. And if you do come through the U.S., I hope you will hit you know Detroit or at least somewhere in Michigan. Yeah, I'd lo I'd love to come to Detroit again. I know the last I think the last time we played there was with like Rituals or, or uh, Ritual Howls. I think it was the last show. Okay. Oh yeah. Okay. Yeah. So the, I mean, uh, yeah, it'd be great. I'll I'll, let, I'll keep you posted. We'll see what's uh, coming down. We usually hit Detroit on the way to Chicago, so it'd be cool. I'd love to go back soon. We're right along the right on the way. Yeah. Okay. Well, good luck in Europe, and uh, we will see you when you get back. Awesome. Thanks so much. Okay. And now, Shadow Play by Adonis Adonis. Enjoy.
You have been listening to the Michigan Mausoleum Podcast. I would like to thank my guests, Tara Johnson-Mettinger and Constantine Zanos of Adonis Adonis. If you enjoyed this episode, please like and subscribe and uh, leave a review if you have time. The Michigan Mausoleum is a World Goth Day Mid-Michigan production. I've been Rokas Doran, your host. The keeper of the creaking door was Miranda Guthrie. Until next time, stay dark. The Michigan Mausoleum is presented by World Goth Day Mid-Michigan and the team that brought you Convergence 24.